to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Welcome to Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I'm Katrina Rowe, a writer, broadcaster and podcaster based in the Riverina of New South Wales. Dr. Paul Rowe, the Outback Historian, is a storyteller from the back of Burke, and together we are retelling the tales of some of Australia's invisible heroes, pioneers and visionaries. These are the forgotten folks who made a huge contribution to Australia. Many of them spoke up on behalf of Australia's most marginalised and invisible people. Most were leaders in their field, but all of them were following the invisible footsteps of their own leader, the carpenter and teacher from Nazareth. I hope you'll enjoy learning about some of the true characters who have shaped our Australian way of life. Today's story starts at Point Maclay Mission in South Australia. The mission was founded in 1859 by the Aborigines Friends Association on the shores of Lake Alexandrina at the mouth of the Murray, the home and heartland of the Naranjeri people. It was here that the author-inventor, activist and preacher David Uniapon nurtured the curiosity that would drive his lifelong love of learning. His passion for classical philosophy, science and literature fed his deep commitment to his Christian faith and his appreciation for his Aboriginal culture and mythology. David's achievements proved publicly to a prejudiced nation that many of their racist assumptions about Aboriginal people were wrong. As the first Australian Aboriginal to be published, he became a public voice for his people, even while many of his own ambitions were being thwarted by prejudice and politics. He actually was part of a movement to try and establish an independent Aboriginal state somewhere in the middle of Australia. Uh, And at the time, he actually got arrested for vagrancy, for goodness sake, which is a novel thing to do to arrest an Aboriginal person for vagrancy in their own country. David Uniapon was a Naranjeri man and prolific inventor who was known as Australia's Leonardo, a man of deep Christian conviction and huge intellect. Uniapon travelled extensively around Australia, lecturing on his scientific ideas, preaching sermons in churches and speaking out about Aboriginal issues. In 1927, he became the first Aboriginal author to be published in Australia with a book of Aboriginal myths and legends. You can see one of his original handwritten manuscripts on the $50 note or in the Mitchell Library in Sydney. To tell us more about this extraordinary man, we're joined by Dr. Paul Rowe, the Outback historian. Good morning, Paul. We've got to say this fellow earned his place on the $50 note because he's quite extraordinary. Yeah, well, it is amazing how many people of faith we are finding on our currency. You know, we've had Mary Roby, we've had Carolyn Chisholm, and it just shows you how influential these people were in building the nation of Australia. So David's no exception. Can you tell us a little bit about his early years? He grew up in a mission, Point Maclay. The mission of there, Mr Taplin, was a bit bit stern and he had a very strong agenda. That was you've got to educate these Aboriginal people to become European, basically. So it was good and bad. I mean, he began a school and education was a very strong part of that mission. But, of course, it was bent in the one direction. However, uh, James Unipon, who was uh, David's father, became a Christian and an evangelist and a translator. So he loved the Aboriginal 
culture and he, he began to tell the stories of the Bible and also the stories of his people. And I think young David caught that from his dad. So that was a big part of his early education, this curiosity not only for European learning but also for his own people. So he went to the mission school from the age of seven, um, which obviously set him off on a path towards, you know, learning and curiosity, but he was considerably better educated than what he could have achieved with that mission school alone. So where did the rest of his education come from? Well, what's apparent about him right through his life, he was very curious about everything. Uh, And uh, I think he had this hunger to learn. And I think when he was sent away, that's what he took with him. He took this passion to learn and he found a great place because he was placed with a man called C.B. Young, who was an extraordinarily gifted man, came from a very strong English high-class family, had a passion for education. He was a pastoralist. He grew vines. He He was involved in politics, all sorts of things, education, the church, So he found himself in a very powerful educational environment and was given the opportunity and encouraged, I think, to study philosophy, literature, music, science. So his natural curiosity was given shape and sort of foundation. And I think that that was really the building blocks for for the rest of his life. Mm. So even though he was, I mean, he was technically a servant of C.B. Young, it sounds like C.B. Young treated him much less of a servant and I guess he certainly seemed to take a big interest in his education and C.B. Young was very involved in the Aboriginal Friends Association. So he Mm. obviously had a real heart for justice and for helping these people. And he was also a a very devout Christian. He actually went to my mum's church, um, Paul, uh, (laughs) St Andrews in Walkerville, where my parents were married. So he was a very well-known identity around Adelaide and I'm sure that was a great resource for David Unipon in getting established. Yeah, he had a tremendous platform really, didn't he? I mean, that that opened lots of doors for him and he seemed to walk through them quite easily and he very quickly became recognised as the Leonardo, eventually the black Leonardo of Australia because of his genius in so many fields. So we know that by 1890 David Unipon was very well educated, he was well read, he played the organ But what sort of opportunities were there for a well-educated Aboriginal man in 1890? What were his options? Well, he could play the organ in the local church and apparently he mastered Handel's Messiah on the organ, which is not a bad effort. Wow. Uh, But by and large, there weren't a lot of opportunities. In fact, he was probably right through his life, while there were opportunities and he took them, he was also treated second rate by a lot of people and the doors were also closed on him. So he struggled to find a platform really initially and I think it was the Aboriginal Friends Association that gave him opportunities and he took those opportunities and he began to speak not just about um, science, although he was prolific in talking about science and became recognised very quickly as an expert in his field in sort of ballistics and motion and that, of course, led to the inventions he made, but also a preacher, a very gifted preacher, and uh, also talking about his, his own uh, culture. So he sort of had irons in a lot of different fires, and he seemed to be very good at it. Yeah, so I, I guess there's different aspects to his work and his achievement. Let's start with the science. Mm-hmm. Um, we know he was constantly inventing. What was the focus of his scientific work? Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, he... He seemed to be interested in motion, basically, and so things like he started to think about how you could use a boomerang type thing to make things fly, and that was sort of an early idea on 
helicopters before the First World War. Wow. And then, of course, he was quite famous for turning sort of circular motion into sort of lateral motion, which became the basis for the shearing industry to use their mechanical shears. And that was his big breakthrough, and that's probably what he's best known for. But he had lots of other inventions he was working on right up till the day he died. He was fascinated with the idea of perpetual motion. How can I invent a perpetual motion machine? So that was the kind of direction he took. I'm sure he would have had a lot more success with his inventions if he'd had the money behind him to actually develop them. Exactly. Because he put in a lot of patents, but he wasn't able to then go out and market them. No, it was sad, wasn't it? And even with his books, he wasn't recognised. So there was a sort of an underlying editing of what he was doing and a a reluctance to recognise that this guy really was a genius. Uh, one of the things, Katrina, he was giving the lie to the question or the, the proposal or the, the idea that was current at the time that Aboriginal people were, were ignorant, were not able to be educated or, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, they were just sort of put down. But he he was obviously uh, quite exceptional and was saying, well, actually, I'm here. If you look at me, you'll see the Bible works. What I believe, my faith is really given me this opportunity to use all these gifts. So I think that's what he had in mind. Mm. But he also had this, um, as well as his love of science, I just wanted to talk a bit about his love of literature uh, because maybe not everyone knows that he had such a strong appreciation of English literature. So what was he reading and who was he influenced by? Yeah, well, apparently he could quote big slabs of John Milton poetry and uh, he could quote big slabs of uh, John Bunyan, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and, of course, the King James Bible. In fact, when he, when he spoke publicly, he often spoke in King James English, which was must have been a curious thing to hear, you know. Yeah. But he, he just loved that sort of high high language and he seemed to think that sort of went with, you know, presenting himself as a learned man and not not that he was trying to show off, but it just came with the package, I think. Yeah. And he was a prolific collector of these Aboriginal myths and legends. Can you tell us more about some of his own writing that ended up being published? Yeah, well, that's interesting. It seems I read something by a scholar who said it's the Aboriginal leaders who listen to the stories of the Bible and then looked at their own mythology. And when they heard the stories, they began to compare them. But there was a, a deep curiosity in the Indigenous people to understand spiritual things. And so when it was taught to them without being taught down to them or being forced on them, if they had the opportunity to hear the story and measure it, and I've talked to somebody recently who said this is true, uh, they began to see, you know, this this story is a bigger story and it makes sense of our, our stories that we've had from ages past, passed on by our elders. It's not like we were wrong and they were right, but more that somehow our stories have found fulfilment. The best of our stories finds fulfilment in this larger story. And I think that that's how he saw it. So he, he he read, apparently he went to the library in Adelaide and he read on Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology. So he was curious about this search for God, I suppose, or search for meaning that was there in other cultures. And I think he saw it in his own and he found it expressed in what he learned from the Bible. I really love that while he really valued his Western education, he actually equally valued his Aboriginal culture and Hmm. that he saw equivalency with other ancient cultures like the Greek mythology and that he, he saw that his own Aboriginal mythology through that prism as well, which, which gave it value and probably was why he wanted to write it down and share it as well. Hmm. 
So how active was he in sort of speaking out and advocating on behalf of Aboriginal people? Yes, he, he had a curious path in some ways. He was a little more uh, conservative than, say, Bill Ferguson, Bill Cooper. In fact, he got into a bit of an argument with them on the day of mourning. He felt they were going the wrong path, sort of taking that more aggressive stance. He was more of a, an assimilationist, you know, that we've got to work our way into white culture and bring our culture with us. But they were sort of putting the challenge up there saying we're demanding that we get recognised up front. But curiously, he um, he's a little bit different. He he actually was part of a movement to try and establish an independent Aboriginal state somewhere in the middle of Australia. Uh, and at the time, he actually got arrested for vagrancy, for goodness sake, which is a novel thing to do to arrest an Aboriginal person for vagrancy in their own country. And uh, they've been people of no fixed address probably in our in our terms for a long time. They were they were migrate, migrating and moving around. Anyway, I think he he definitely had a strong opinion, and he gathered some pretty high powered people around him. Uh, A. P. Elkin, who was an anthropologist, also a Christian. Uh, Charles Duguid, uh, Dr. Charles Duguid, was a very high, highly educated man who was on side with the Aboriginal people. So he was part of a very strong group who were advocating for the Aboriginal people and for their rights and and to be given recognition in their own country. Hmm. Well, the other thing, of course, that he was well known for was as a preacher, which was in many ways one of his main professions. And uh, I'm just wondering what we know about his preaching. Has much of it survived? What can you tell us about his style of preaching? Uh, I'd love to have read some of his sermons. I haven't been able to yet, but uh, it'd be interesting to hear them or read them. I guess he followed some of the old style that he learned from his dad and some of the other early evangelists that he knew. So they were fairly sort of strong. Uh, he was a very strong preacher and he mm. used King James English, as we said before, and quoted big slabs of the King James Bible, probably Pilgrim's Progress and Paradise Lost as well. So he was fairly high flown when he preached, although he could move from preaching in English, you know, in that high-flown English, dignified sort of English, into his own language as well. So he he wasn't afraid to preach in his own language, just like his father. So he was he was quite unique in this that he could do both, and probably took the English side of it even more sort of higher than we would. Uh, but it's a it's an interesting story, isn't it? But he all his life he was a preacher right from the start. And uh, he's yeah. saying, if you want to know whether the Bible works, look at me. I don't think he meant just, you know, salvation sort of thing that I, I, I'm changed. But he, I think it meant look at me in the sense that I can use all the gifts that God has given me for my people, for the, the advancement of our culture together as Australians, white and black together. So I think he was sort of himself as sort of pioneering a path that he wanted others to follow, that they could use their gifts to bless other people. Mm. So if you look back over his life, he did so many different things. I mean, how would you sum up his contribution? That's a good question. I would like to think he certainly settled the issue that Aboriginal people were not able to be educated. He settled that once and for all. Of course they could. Were they spiritual? Well, of course they were. And their spirituality wasn't necessarily antagonistic to all that was in the Christian faith. And then he demonstrated that he, he could keep loyal to the Christian faith and to the whole educational process, to, to, to look and learn and grow. Um, I like that about him. There's a sort of bright spirit in him that wants to 
get out and do. And so even as an old man, I think it was towards 90, he was still working on his inventions and also still traveling, walking to preach. So that says something about him, I think. Definitely. Well, it's wonderful that we can still get hold of some of his writing today and sort of get to know him oh, that way. And go to well. the shearing shed and have a look at his shear, somebody shearing and you'll learn <laughs> there he was right there in the thick of the working world. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paul. You're welcome. That is the Outback Historian, Dr. Paul Rowe. We've been talking about the writer, inventor and preacher, David Nunaipon. Paul's new book is called Tell Me Another, A Storyteller's Search for Australia's Lost Faith. And you can find Paul online at theoutbackhistorian.com.au and I am at katrinarote.com. Thanks for listening to Episode 28 of Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I hope you've enjoyed learning about David Uniapon, a dedicated man of science, art and religion. Even though he's been compared to Leonardo da Vinci for obvious reasons, he clearly deserves to be remembered in his own right. You can find more links and info about David Uniapon in our notes section. In our next episode, we'll meet a woman who made it her mission to see women participating in every area of public life, education, religion, politics, social justice. Edith Cowan didn't just leap over hurdles for women, she knocked them down permanently. She was the first woman to ever sit in an Australian parliament. And she had a nice touch. I think she had a a good sense of humour. She picked up one small issue like, Apparently, women with perambulators, with prams for children, got charged a shilling to carry their pram on the train. And she said, well, that's that's ridiculous, you know. And she suggested that the, that the Minister for Railways should be made to carry a heavy child in a bag of shopping around town for half a day and see how he liked it. <laughs> Edith Cowan has a university named after her, and she also appears on Our Currency. We'll meet this formidable trailblazer in Episode 29 of Australia's Invisible History. If you've enjoyed our stories, please share them with your family, friends, students or colleagues. You can sign up for the latest news at hope1032.com.au or follow Dr. Paul Rowe at theoutbackhistorian.com.au. I'm Katrina Rowe. You can find me on Facebook or Insta as Katrina Rowe Author. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you've enjoyed this episode of Australia's Invisible History, please do subscribe and share among your friends so we can keep telling the stories. Plus, you can find more details and useful links in the show notes. Hope 1032. Thanks for listening.